With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Om Shanti. The time that we choose to be aware doesn't necessarily require me to just sit and meditate. But even while I walk and move around, I can be in a meditative awareness, which is awareness of the soul, the original, eternal, imperishable being of light. For a little while, I'd like to invite you to be present, to be here, and to be now. Allow your mind to settle in the moment, to relax. This meditation is about awareness. It's about becoming aware of your original and eternal self. It's about connecting to your truth. Let go of your name. And observe yourself feeling nameless. Let go of your gender to discontinue thinking you're a man or a woman. Let it go and observe how you would feel walking around without a gender. Let go of the role that you play and let go 
of the titles that you own. Observe how you're feeling as you are gradually letting go. Let go of your religion and put it aside just for now. And let go of your nationality and even the language that you're accustomed to. Imagine you have no name, gender, role, title, religion, nationality, or even a language. Ask yourself. How do you feel at this moment? And in this feeling, who would think of you and who would you think of? supreme soul would think of you and you the liberated soul would think of the supreme in this state of absolute freedom I am truly who I am a free Hello everyone, welcome to America Meditating Radio. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. That was the beautiful Letting Go Meditation. Didn't you love that one? You can find that on the Inclusion Revolution Together with Love, or you can also find it on Off the Grid. (laughs) It was so good, we had to do it twice. So as we continue to navigate our journey, so many different scenes emerge. We find ourselves in various positions, circumstances, situations, so many changes, and yet we persevere. We don't give up. We continue to move forward. I'm looking forward to having our next guest on because as I was going into his life and his story, I was remembering my own mother. I find it so interesting now, my wish to support orphanages and individuals who've had 
a kind of a unique upbringing as a child, but my mother being orphaned at seven, as many of you have heard and have been with me on the journey of AM radio. I know she's taking a lot of her trauma still with her, but despite what she's been through, she still pushed through, was still able to raise some sort of a well-rounded daughter (laughs) and be of service to humanity and shine her light in the best way possible. And it's an inspiration. Today, our inspirational guest, at the age of three, Ed Hajim was kidnapped by his father, driven across country, was told his mother no longer existed. And shortly after his dad left him behind, Ed grew up in orphanages and foster homes with no mother or father. Ed is the son of a Syrian immigrant and is a seasoned Wall Street executive with more than 50 years of investment experience. He has held senior management positions with a number of the top investment firms before becoming chairman and CEO of Furman Cells. Ed is now the chairman of High Vista, a Boston-based money management company. And in 2015, Ed received the Horatio Alger Award given to Americans who exemplify the values of initiative, leadership, and commitment to excellence who have exceeded and succeeded despite personal adversities. Ed joins us today to share his inspirational story of rising from dire childhood circumstances to achieve professional success and personal fulfillment as an American financier and philanthropist. Ed, you have no idea how much I'm looking forward to us having our conversation today. I'm looking forward to Thank you for joining us. You have had an amazing life, and while your childhood would have broken most people, how were you able to overcome the odds and not become another statistic? First, I'm a big proponent of meditation. I use 10% Grant's meditation app and try to use it. I'm not as good as I should be. Don't worry, I'll help you. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're so well-rounded. I look back, and the reason I've written this book is because of the fact that I want to communicate to people that anything is possible. I did go through five foster homes and hotel rooms and motel rooms and two orphanages. It wasn't pleasant, but I was able, by going to school, and the reason I got through this is I had a dream. I really believed that there was a better life and through movies and other people and some counseling that I got along the way, some good foster homes, people I could recognize that there was another life out there. And I discovered something early on, that education was the key to lifting myself out of these difficulties. And so I focused in on that. I guess having a few good genes, I did have a good mind and, and became enthusiastic about math and science. And that fit right in with what was in demand at that particular time. Now, did you remember how old you were when you really knew education was the key to getting you out of the situation that you were in? It was actually from going from the first orphanage to the second orphanage. I went to a very fine high school in Yonkers, New York, and I came to the conclusion. I looked around among other orphans, and they all felt the best they could do was go to public colleges. And I looked at success stories, and success stories at the time in the 50s were people who went to private colleges. So I said, if I'm going to go to private colleges, i really got to focus in it, gear down and really do a job on getting good grades and getting a good education. It served me very well. But even in grammar school, I was a reasonably good student. In early on, at the foster homes, I was not a good student. <laughs> My report cards from the Catholic schools were, he seems like a bright boy, but he's too mischievous for us to figure it out. I was rebelling at the time, living in 
five different foster homes and having to readjust to each one of them. There's a rites of passage right. when you move from neighborhood to neighborhood. But the other thing that slowly evolved, and the reason I really sort of got out of it, is, is disadvantages during my childhood become advantages. After adapting to the first three or four or five changes, I became adaptable, which was a real advantage. The next problem was not as great as problems the last three or four. And it also gave me a certain resilience, and resilience is kind of like a muscle. If you use it, it gets stronger. And then, of course, once you use resilience, you get perseverance. I've been knocked down a couple times, I'm going to get up again. Those disadvantages became advantages over time, and they served me well and helped me to lift myself out of a great deal of difficulty. The last orphanage was four blocks from an excellent high school. It was all boys. There was a general tenor, it wasn't every one of the kids, of wanting to do better. It wasn't Hmm. a reform school for wayward children. The fellow there, whose name was the boss, his name was Ruben (laughs) Kostoff, was very enthusiastic about education, and he really was the one who sort of helped me to get on that track. Do you remember some pivotal moments that occurred, let's say, between the ages of 10 and 18? They were really defining moments for you. Oh, there's a lot of moments. At 14, when I was aging out of the first orphanage, my father disappeared. I became a ward of the state. It took a while to get the papers done, but I then realized I was on my own. Therefore, the idea of self-reliance became just absolutely paramount. When you find that out completely, that there's nobody out there, I think something happens, and that was one of the defining moments. The other defining moment, I think, was at this fine high school in Yonkers. I started to find that I could really find my place. Not all the kids accepted us because we were different than most of the kids at the school, but some did. And I developed a number of friends and found that I could probably socially exist as well as academically. I was an athlete. I played basketball and baseball. Those are kind of two defining moments. Before that, it was complex because I'd gone from when I was with my father for a year, from a hotel room with my own bathroom and my own closet to a place where there were 50 boys in one room and the bathroom had 10 shower heads and 10 sinks in it. That transition and the rites of passage moving into an orphanage is not simple, but it did give me some stability and some consistency. So there was a little bit of a moment from going from living with my father to an orphanage to adjusting to that. That was kind of a defining moment. When he disappeared, kind of another defining moment, making me more self-reliant. But the big one was in high school. The teachers at the school, the people at the orphanage, they gave me goals that I thought I could achieve that were something that take me out of present circumstance. So it's good to bump into a really, really good teacher. So congratulations on your new book, On the Road Less Traveled. You've got to tell us what was the genesis behind writing the memoir. Was it the lockdown (laughs) or just... Well, you know, something that you were thinking of doing for a while. I buried my background. At 18 years old, when I left that high school, I buried it. I refused to deal with it. Most psychologists say that's a bad thing, but it was good for me because I didn't have to deal with it, and it caused me to constantly look forward rather than looking back. But 55 years later, my wife and my children said, Dad, Grandpa, you've got to write this down. It shouldn't be lost. And the University of Rochester wanted to know much more about my background when I became chairman of the board. And I started to write it. And when I started to write it, I found out that I was learning lessons about myself, which is a unique experience when you write a book. And then when I read the first galleys, I started giving it to a few of my friends, you know, not the closest friends, because the closest friends don't tell you the truth. Everybody mm-hmm. almost unequivocally said, this book should be read. 
by every high school senior, every college freshman, and most everybody in college, and especially those who come from poor backgrounds. And in today's mm-hmm. world, we have a great number of kids do yeah. go to college. Yeah. And in my day, it didn't happen. Man, I was very unique. I don't remember anybody at the University of Rochester who had my background. And that's one reason I buried it. So writing the book started to take its own life. As I started to write it, I learned about writing. I learned about myself. I learned about my relationships with people along the way as I studied what had happened to me. And then more importantly, I found that this could be useful to others. Some people use the word inspirational. I guess I'll accept that so little too much for me. But more importantly, just lessons learned that maybe can help people get over some of the bumps that they have early in life. If I can help a freshman in college uh, understand that abandoning the road is not the end of the road, I'm involved in a group called Wiley. This is a new avenue which opened up to me I'd never heard of before, which deals with foster parent kids that are in colleges because they don't flunk out because of academia. They flunk out because of social problems with adjustment. That was mm. the genesis of the book was basically my wife and my daughter in particular saying, Dad, you've got to write this down now before it's too late. <laughs> Let's talk about families since that's something perhaps that you've grown into. It's not something that you had in terms of the conventional form of family. Maybe the folks at the orphanage or your family or the foster homes or your friends It was a different definition of what family is, which had perhaps a lot more detachment to it. There was a lot more letting go of people easier. But now you've got your own family. What does that mean to you? It's everything. I've been very lucky in having a number of legacies. Some of them actually will live on for a while. But the biggest legacy is my family, and it was my biggest goal. Even 10, 11, 12 years old, looking around at the families I lived with, and some were terrible. first foster home was cold and abusive. The last yeah. one was warm and caring. And Mrs. Rob, who was the warm and caring one, set a goal for me. And I'd really like to have a family like that. But also, I'd say the movies did the same thing in those days. You found yeah. movies where people were happy and it was all ideal and so forth. So I set a pretty hard structure. I had trouble for a long time getting married because I didn't get married till I was 29. But I really wanted mm-hmm. to have a family. And that was the legacy I really wanted to have. I luckily found a woman who truly loved me, and we married now for 55 years. We have three children and eight wow. grandchildren, seven grandsons. I believe life is in four buckets, self, family, work, and community, and we can't spend enough time on that second bucket, which is family, because it's so important. It's our real legacy, and I have tried to spend as much time with my family as possible. Even though I learned this idea of the division of my life later on, and work does take a little more time than it should. In my case, it did because I had to gain financial stability. But family is right, very right. important. That's another one of the lessons that I hope I can pass on is things that you can do with your family that makes the family better. I mean, I, we have these special family vacations where the kids can't get away. Being, I'm sure they love you know, that. <laughs> if you take a little boat in the Caribbean, it's not more expensive than hotel rooms. It's actually less expensive. At night, right. and when you're in a resort, they disappear. But on the boat, they can't, so you've got to talk to them. Very clever. I can give lessons on how to stay married. In the first couple of years, make sure you you take a car trip, because when you're in a car trip (laughs) with your wife for four days, you discuss everything. (laughs) You know what? Sometimes we take these trips in our RVs, and I don't know, there are conversations that come up that we never had when we were in the house. It's a really good method. Those first 10 years of marriage, 
It'll go by quickly, and all of a sudden you haven't done it. But you take those four or five days in a car, you end up in some crazy motel some night, and you go to some chicken place, and, and all of a sudden you discuss things exactly you never talked about. The first day can be pretty tough because you're going to bring out the real problems, but slowly you work your way through them. And we did that for the first you know, 10 or 15 years of our life. I also believe little things like sending your wife flowers every once in a while, not for a birthday or an anniversary, but just because. And you can mm-hmm. get big points for that because I believe – Marriage is, and someone said this before, I think it was Billy Graham said it, best marriages of two forgivers. Mm. Because in so many respects, when you get married, first of all, we all change, which is really difficult. Even if you know the person when you get married, people change so much during their lifetimes because of what I call the environment. External, you lose your job, you have a problem with a good friend, or you're very successful. Some of the biggest problems is, you know, when you get very successful too soon. Then all of a sudden, yeah, you know, the you work don't know how right. to manage it. Exactly yeah. right. I've got a chapter in my third book. It's called "Get Rich Slowly." <laughs> <laughs> Handle the adjustment. You don't get caught up out of kilter. That's a yeah. long answer to your short question. I was thinking uh, about my mother, who was in an orphanage, and she was the elder one out of her three sisters, and how she had to be there to support them. But that sometimes it's just different for a woman than a man in that situation. Oh, I think and you're right. Even, Absolutely. Yeah, and even though she's pushed her way through, she could have been a statistic as well, but she carries a lot of that trauma of being abandoned. She has much more resilience, but you carry anger from being abandoned. It shows itself in different ways. As an angry young man, I've slowly worked my way through over a lifetime to be much less angry. But things like Sundays. Sundays at the orphanage when other people, other kids had visitors, I didn't. Sundays sometimes are difficult mm-hmm. for no reason. All of a sudden, my wife will say, what's the matter with you? There's a flashback. You yeah. don't get rid of that too easily. Your mother, though, having dealt with it, will be stronger. And I find young people today that don't have difficulties early in their life, and they come across difficulty later in life, they get anxieties that I don't have. Things are so much better than they were then. I've developed gratitude rather than anxiety. Yes. I'll agree with you. She does have a great deal of strength, and I know she gets it from above, no doubt. You had mentioned something about the four Ps. I know the book talks about that. If you'll pardon me, this is late-night conversation with a good bottle of red wine, but (laughs) I do believe the only constant in life is your inner voice. Your parents are there for a while, your spouse is there for a while, but birth to death, you have this inner voice that you talk to, and the church used to call it your conscience and so forth. And I think developing a conversation with that voice... And understanding that voice can be extremely helpful throughout life. And the conversation is a language. And I want to develop words that I use with my inner voice. And the words that I developed, and you can use your own words, my words were passion, principles, partners, and plans. Passion is an overused word. It includes talents and interests and all kinds of other things. But just trace those through life and pay attention to them as they change. I started with math and science baseball and basketball and all I couldn't put it in my book, girls, that morphed over in college, intramural sports and extracurricular activities and from science and math to engineering, from there to chemical engineering. And then finally I got into management. I found out in college my true passion was getting people together to create a project or a product. It really excited mm-hmm. me. And in that, the passion was to watch people and help people do better than they thought they could. This became a management philosophy for me. And then, of course, the second P, principles. Get your principles early. 
in the Catholic Church, the death of me, and it wraps on the knuckles. I learned the, the golden rule very quickly, or else if I was in trouble. The principles also evolved through life. Somewhere yes. in my high school or early college area, I started to develop a desire to have freedom. And that drove me instead of to large companies over a lifetime to smaller companies. By the way, the voice can be helpful and hurtful. I had a string of very early success in business, and my voice developed a disease called hubris. Hubris is terminal. I started to believe that I could do almost anything at 35, 34 years old. And I had a company which I took on too many responsibilities, and it failed. And so my voice and I had a real conversation. And then hubris really went from hubris to humility. And it was important. My voice then said, yeah, we remember this together. We did this together. We made a mistake. And then finally, partners, P1, find a partner to share your life with, you know, someone who you can support and support you, and that's important. And that's a discussion, too. You know, what kind of partner do you want? Talk to your inner voice. You know, really talk to your parents and so forth. My son-in-law did ask for marriage at Mass My Daughter, but that's sort of unusual today. And then finally, plan. God laughs, man plans. I think that's an old expression. But I think if you don't have a plan, you don't know where you're going. And so when you it's decide to change course, you've got to look back. At and I used this in 70 graduations, and it resonated with the kids. One person wrote a senior master's thesis on it using this conversation. I think that's kind of important, and it's kind of fun. And I believe the conversation has to be simple. Otherwise, it's noisy. I can go yes. back to the drawer with the passions in it, and I can trace my passions. I open that drawer, and they're all there. I go back to my principles. Right now, my biggest principle is gratitude. And that's an evolution. I didn't really have gratitude until I was in my 40s. And now I think mm. gratitude is the most important thing. People ask me, how are you? I'm 84 years old. I said, I'm grateful. It's a very oh, yeah. different expression in saying, I got this pain or I'm that, but I'm grateful. <laughs> so it's kind of fun. That's about the four Ps. I have a book written on it, which is going to come out probably at the end of this year, which really oh, focuses good. on the four Ps. I really like to have people start to think about a language they develop with themselves. You're in meditation. You understand that more than anybody else. Well, even if you could be in meditation, and we do understand things, we're still always growing and developing. You know that, right? Right. You know, it doesn't mean that we're going to do everything right. No, no. <laughs> uh, you know, one out. of my secrets of success is what's next. I always go with what's new. And by the way, that's what really helped me. If I had to deal in my early 20s with my background, it would have been very difficult for me, and I just buried it. But now is the time... The psychologists are right. It never goes away, so you've got to deal with it. Now I'm dealing with it. Writing the book, I had to re-deal with my father, and actually he gained points. I understood more about what happened to him because I discovered things I didn't know. And when he abandoned me when I was 14, completely gone, disappeared. I couldn't find him. It turns out in 2015, the library at the University of Rochester found some Governor Tom Dewey's papers. He was suing the union and suing the shipping company and so forth because they tried to take his life. He had written a letter to the governor, and that was in the governor's papers. And some librarian discovered it and showed it to me. Wow. Doing this thing has been very healthy for me to recognize the poor man lost everything in the 30s. And yeah. Did you ever connect with your father as an adult? We had peaceable coexistence once I graduated oh. from college because he disagreed with almost everything I did. When I left the Navy, we had a big <laughs> row because he wanted me to stay in the service. When I left engineering to go to business school, he was unhappy with that because he thought I was making a mistake. And my wife unfortunately, looked a little like my mother. I never saw a picture of my mother, so I didn't know what she looked like. But my father obviously objected to my wife in addition. So since he objected to most of my decisions, we had we put me a piece of a code wow. we communicated, but he died suddenly, and we never had closure. Finally, he got help 
when I was a young man, you didn't get help because if you got help, that way you were sick or there was something wrong. But right. when my father died, I went and I met a woman at the Ackerman Institute in New York, and she and I worked out a system. It was a wonderful system, and I recommend it to people. My father died of a heart attack. It was just sudden. I never had a minute to talk to him. So I wrote letters to him, and I wrote letters back to, pretending I was him. It took me six wow. months. That must have been healing. It was healing. In addition, the woman was fabulous because she would criticize the letters that I would write back as my father. You know, you're really telling the truth. You're digging in. It was hard. I mean, it was painful at points in time because I started to realize how close I was to my father, how important he was to me. And I was never going to bring closure, you know. Ed, isn't life fascinating? When you look back at it and you're like, how in the world did I even survive that? It gives you what you were saying, that sense of gratitude. And I don't think you even have to be 85 to do a review of your life to say that you're grateful. But sometimes just those every moments that you can survive or smile or just have another opportunity, you're like, I'm just grateful. What a fascinating thing. Why it's so wonderful. I mean, everything about it is fascinating. And you just said something. About in my 40s, I listened to somebody talk about smiling. Smile at people when you're walking along, and your life will change. And I started doing that, and it's shocking. You mm. smile at strangers, they smile back, and you feel better, and they feel better. It's just crazy. Yeah. And I had a massage therapist for years, and she used to say, isn't it wonderful to have a body? Yeah. Think about that. <laughs> I love she, that. She was a professor of touch. She could look at you and find what was wrong, and then she would touch that particular area. I lost her. She went to California. The whole process of family, watching people develop and trying to help them. Right now, people say to me, books changed my life. I've learned something from it. And that really gives me a great deal of satisfaction and gratitude for being around to be able to do that for as long Indeed. as I can. Well, congratulations for all the good that you're doing. Now, during your tenure as chairman of the University of Rochester Board, you were able to organize giving the school $30 million, which was the largest single donation in its history, through the Hey Jim Family Foundation. Now, you've made some other generous donations to various charitable organizations. What has your success in life taught you, and why is giving back so important to you? Get back to my four buckets. Self, which you have to <laughs> deal with. Before you're 25, you've got to get self at least stabilized. Family's very right. important, but that goes away when everybody leaves the house. Work disappears when you get to be a certain age community which is the fourth one is where you actually get and i didn't realize this until later on satisfaction when you really can do something for other people or for other major organizations the university changed my life as my first home yeah. it changes everybody's life when you're 18 and you leave and you go to college you get a chance to do it all over again and i started a new life i became a new person when I decided to make that a gift, they asked me to be the chairman. I went into the development office and I said, you know, I've got to give the largest gift. Otherwise, it's not going to be meaningful. George Eastman gave the largest gift, but it was in terms of nominal dollars, it was less than my gift. It really wasn't fair. He gave $27 million in 1925 or something, which is worth far more than $30 million today. But in order to make the statement, I had to cobble together. It really wasn't my money. I called my family together and I said, this is your money going to be there when I pass away. I want to give half of it away. And they said, go for it. Complete commitment of my wife and, and the three children to say, you know, Dad, we don't need it and you should do what you want to do with it. It gave me an enormous amount of satisfaction and a true legacy. I worked for three companies, E.F. Hutton, Lehman Brothers, and Furman Cells. They are all gone now. Those names mm -hmm. are history. 
there's no such thing anymore and so forth. University of Rochester will live on forever. And what I love about this is that they named the school after me, the Harvard Hagem School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Did you know now mm-hmm. every year 500 students have to suffer with the pronunciation of my name like I have for my entire <laughs> life? <laughs> I get it. So, well, you know, there has to be some effort there somehow, some way. The fairy tale is that I spent my eight years as the chairman wanting to put all the engineering disciplines together in one place, and we moved buildings around and so forth, and got a new quadrangle, and then they named the quadrangle after me. So there's a quadrangle named Hadrum, and then to make it a fairy tale, which I still don't believe, they constructed a statue of me, eight foot of bronze. That's fantastic. I'm the first person in my neighborhood to have a statue. (laughs) I bet you are. It's kind of humorous. They put hats on it and a few other things recently, but it's a legacy that you never, ever expect. Coming out of an orphanage in a leather jacket with too much hair 60 years ago, to think of the fact that I would have a quadrangle named after me in a school. But it's more than that. If you want to get great satisfaction, you take a woman whose name is Sarah Walters. She's five foot high. She's an optical engineering major. She's gotten her PhD recently. There's a picture of me in, in my book. And she's a concert pianist and a concert violinist. She stands up in front of a crowd of over 100 people and says, if it wasn't Mr. Hazem, I wouldn't be here. I mean, when I say it now, it gets me all goosebumps. That's really what it's yeah. all about. Giving you know. back is big. So listen, I'm going to put you into what I call spiritual rapid fire. I'm going to ask you a few questions, and I want you to just basically offer me the first thought in your mind. Are you ready? Ready. Texting or talking? Talking. Favorite day of the week? Tuesday. Why Tuesday? <laughs> you asked me what course came okay. online. Tuesday's golf, okay. it's also the day after Monday. Monday's the hardest day of the week. Oh, yeah, gotcha. So favorite city in the U.S. besides the one you live in? San Francisco. Used to be. Favorite holiday? Christmas. What age do you plan to retire? Never. Got you. Wonderful. This is beautiful. So life continues for us, right, Ed? And you have been such a contribution to our humanity. We love you, we honor you, we respect you, and we thank you. I fall in love once, I'm going to fall in love again here. Thank you very much. All the very best. (laughs) Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What an inspiring story. Ed Hajim, everyone. Look for his website, edhajim.com, for more information. See, you can rise up in the rubble, get yourself out of your stuff and being stuck, and just move forward. Don't hold back. Keep moving forward. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we really are here to love each other the same. So let's do that. And I'm going to end the show today with Flying Free from Bliss on her Letting Go album. Take care, everyone.
I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.